Um, so, the simplicity of God is um, poorly named because it's anything but. Um, but what we're going to do is before we define it, I'm actually going to set up a little bit of the problem that the simplicity of God answers in determining which one of these you are. Are you a classical theist or a theistic mutualist? And, uh, and we'll define what those are and talk about why it's important and talk about their connection to the simplicity of God. But before we do that, um, I want to do our Lectio Divina. Um, just kind of a spiritual reflective reading over some some scripture um and this is a short one so you're gonna have plenty of time to read it through a number of times um but in job 35 so job as many of you know is a a book of 38 chapters of man trying to tell god what he's like and then finally god just says shut up and we're gonna let, let me explain to you what you don't understand And this is toward the end of that section. So in chapter 35, I just want us to read these three verses. I'm going to read them out loud. I'm going to read them in a translation you've probably not heard. I'm I'm, I'm growing increasingly fond of actually varying the translations on purpose. So whatever I know you're holding, I'll probably read out of something different. Um, And it's also connected to the fact that Sunnybrook is currently evaluating what will be our primary translation for the foreseeable future. but I think it's just helpful to hear it in something that isn't quite familiar because that looks like an NIV. Anthony's probably reading from like a 1515 Bible. And, you know, a lot of you will be ESV. But this, this is the Christian Standard Bible, and so it might sound a bit different. But I'm going to read through it, and then I want you to spend some time reading through it and thinking through some of the things that this tells us about God. So it says in verse 5, Look at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds high above you. If you sin, how does it affect God? If you multiply your transgressions, what does it do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? And without reading the rest of the chapter, I'll just tell you the implied answer to all of those questions is nothing. (laughs) None of this affects him. And that's going to be a big concept in what we do tonight so spend uh, just read through that those few verses you might want to expand out to read the whole chapter but particularly those three verses uh just a couple of times over and then we'll come back and continue
Okay. Um, what are some thoughts that these short verses stir up about God? Or questions, maybe. That is interesting. Almost as if Elihu is um, is saying, "Look at the infinitude of God." And now let's talk about your sin again. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a. If this, then why is this so important to you? Not that sin is unimportant, but comparatively speaking, to a cosmic God, to to someone who inhabits the farthest reaches of all creation and then beyond that um, how little our transgressions actually affect him not that they don't anger him but how little they actually affect him what else does this stir up Does this picture of God seem somewhat cold, disinterested in whatever it is Kelsey's up to? Mm-hmm. And I was just going to say, like, so then what's the point? Mm-hmm. It doesn't affect God. You know, it's Fair question. What else? I think it gives him peace. Because we are not a big enough deal. That's a good thing. I can't. Thank goodness I cannot. It sounds like a, a stabilizing idea to you. A nihilistic idea to you. No, I'm fine with that. I'm just saying some people could lose that question. Oh, okay. Like, what? I have a feeling. <laughs> no, no, seriously. Like, if, if, if my sin doesn't affect God, then why would he send Jesus to save me? Yeah. Like, if my righteousness doesn't please God, then why would I attempt to be righteous? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Notice how, but notice the apologetic angle at that. Like I would, I would come at that as if it, it seems somewhat selfish if God needs to save me because I'm affecting Him. It seems overly loving if He saves me, even though I do nothing to Him with my crimes. That's 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 even more loving. That is a compassionate God who demonstrates compassion that that He does not need to demonstrate in order to be complete and satisfied in Himself. That's a that's a different kind of love than a. A selfish love that loves in order to kind of fix his own feelings. You know what I mean? I was asking on my paper, how does this relate to the concept of the wrath of God, the grieving the Holy Spirit, things of those that of that nature where it does seem in the scriptures? Um, not that there obviously is conflict, but there is a discrepancy. There is. There is. And that's one of the big pushbacks against... What we'll see is um, is the doctrine of divine simplicity. But that's a that's a really helpful segue to this question. 
do we embrace classical theism or theistic mutualism? Here's what classical theism traditionally has believed about God. Not exhaustively, but as it relates to simplicity, these are some important ideas believed by classical theists. I won't put a time frame on classical theism. Um, I, I will say theistic mutualism is rather new. And when I say new, 300 years old. Um, classical theism is classical for a reason. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's old. It just means that it's enduring. So first, God is self-existing, which Anthony taught, what, three, year, three weeks ago? Yeah. The aseity of God? He's self-existing. There is nothing that causes him to exist other than his own existence. And it, it takes place, it, 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 he exists in perpetuity in both directions. If, uh, uh, eternity is easy to, to conceptualize in one direction. Like I can, I can visualize an eternal future. I have no concept, nor do I have like a, a working framework for a, an eternity in the past where nothing ever, like there was no beginning. God exists in both directions out of himself. That is a big idea in classical theism. He is absolutely unchanging. And we'll see that um, this doctrine is hard to argue. Uh, it's virtually impossible to argue against or uh, to argue against it. But it's also difficult to reconcile it with some things like, say, the incarnation. Sure seems like a big change in God when Jesus shows up in human form. Um, Jesus' own death seems like a change. I do believe that God is still unchanging even as he incarnates and even as he submits himself to the will of the Father in the Son. But he is absolutely unchanging, and that adjective is important. Absolutely unchanging. Not generally unchanging. Not when it's more advantageous than not unchanging. He is absolutely unchanging in himself because... Why? To change is to move from one state of being into another, and you cannot do that if you're a perfect God. You cannot go from one perfection to a better perfection because you can't have a better perfection. So either he is going to improve or he is going to decrease, and either way it kind of nullifies his godness. He is absolutely unchanging. Um, and I know that that's, that's complex when we get, again, into the New Testament, but let's just put it out there for now. He is absolutely eternal, which we just described. I love this idea. God does not derive any aspect of his being from outside himself and is not in any way caused to be. He just is. It puts some real skin on the idea that when, when he says, I am that I am. Um, a, probably a more literal translation of what's being said there is, I am the existing one. All of you are contingent beings. All of you began to exist. I am the one who just exists. I am that I am. So that's classical theism. Uh, or at least that's, that's four kind of prominent tenets of classical theism. There are others. But in contrast, theistic mutualism, I mean, how good does this sound? And how often do we talk like this? God exists in relationship with his creation. True or not true? It depends on what you do with the word exists. Like if you were to ask, does God foster some level of a relationship with the, those he's created, with the, the creation that he's put in place? At, yeah, of course. He's a relational God. 
He does not exist, though, in relationship with us. Because if I were to take away the relationship with us, it does not affect his existence. And this is where theistic mutualists, like uh, where, where God and humanity are in this sort of divine dance. Um, I, I've grown to hate this book over, over the years. I, I loved it when I first read it. The Divine Romance. I can't even remember who wrote it. Um, but it talked about, the, it, it was a spiritual formation book that was talking about kind of this, this love, this real visceral love you can have with the Lord. And man, it, it just rolled my socks up and down when I read it 10, 15 years ago. And the more that I think about it, the more I think it's baked into it, theistic mutualism. That not only, we'd all agree that God can affect us, but it's amazing how often we can slip into, and, and look at how we affect God. Which that's not what Job 35 says is even possible. So he exists in relationship with his creation, theistic mutualists will uh, we'll say they say that God reacts to and is changed by His interaction with creation. As He interacts with creation, He is He is responding to things, and He is even like you can change His mind at some level. The Scriptures even talk like this. But we have to qualify what the Scriptures are actually saying when, say, in Exodus thirty-two, um, the Lord tells Moses, hey, you morons down there, they're building calves, and Aaron's an idiot, and I'm going to kill them all, start with you. And, and, and Moses says, Moses pleads on their behalf and says, but what about the promises you made and the, and the, the big show you put on back in Egypt? And, and it says that God relents. And the, uh, the technical term there in the Hebrew is that God repents. He changes his mind from one direction toward another. So how does God repent if he doesn't change? It's, like, it's a complicated idea. It's probably not something that we have time to delve into in this lesson. I'll just say there's a difference between God changing his mind and me changing my mind. One is consistent and perfect within itself, and it, there is no contradiction. And when Ryan changes its mind, or his mind, it's because Ryan was wrong. Like Anthony has changed my mind about certain things. I used to think Ezra was just a schmuck for conducting his mass divorce. I thought he was a terrible human being. And then um, I, I talked to Anthony about it, and we worked through some other scriptures, and I changed my mind. When we get to heaven, I'll apologize to Ezra for my slander. Um, but theistic mutualists, again, says so that God, when he interacts with his creation, he is himself affected by that. And they'll say, God is actually eternal. Okay, we got to concede that. That's a clearly a biblical idea, but he changes in response to history, almost as if he's like this master chess player. Like, he's never going to not get what he wants, but he's still, he's still reacting real time. My little brother used to be, uh, he quit um, uh, just because he didn't like that he, I don't know why he quit, but he was a gifted, gifted chess player. Um, three time, three years consecutive state runner-up in chess, always lost to, like, his best friend, and they were tutored by the same guy. It just drove him crazy. But when he was, like, so I'm... 16 years older than him when he was like 7 I couldn't beat him anymore and I'm not a bad chess player I couldn't beat him anymore I just, I'm talking to my stupid 7 year old brother say okay so like, what am I doing wrong and he's like well Ryan this is 7 year old Ryan um, you're thinking about your next 5 to 7 moves and he said you're not thinking what I'm going to do he said I'm thinking about the next 5 to 7 things I'm going to make you do <laughs> as a chess player he's like my moves are going to make you make the moves I want you to move. And so he's a master chess player in that sense. A lot of us look at God like that. He's so good. He's truly reacting, but he's, 
He's reacting in such a way that he is, he is making things happen that he wants to happen and you can't do otherwise. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't talk about God. That's, that's something called process theism or open theism, that God is actually changing real time and he's just so much bigger and more powerful and all-knowing than you, then you'll just never get out ahead of him. But that's not what the Bible teaches, as we'll see here in a minute. Theistic mutualists believe that God is complete within himself, but he willingly allows other factors to change him. Of course, under the direction of his sovereignty. Now, if I had not shown you what classical theism says, I, th- I, I feel like I could put this in front of many of us and we would just, yeah, that sounds right. But like all good heresy, it's close enough to be deceptive. And there are some significant flaws in each of these principles. And the doctrine of divine simplicity is actually going to help us solve a lot of this. Let's look at, you know, my penchant for quotes. Um, Let's look here at what some others have said. So here's a Catholic theologian, Henry McKay, or Herbert McKay. He said, there has been a deplorable and idolatrous tendency on the part of some Christians to diminish God. That he's responding to theistic mutualism to, to talk about how God interacts with us in such a way that he is the master chess player. In order that God may stand in relationship with his creatures, he is actually made one of them. A member of the universe, subject to change and even disappointment and suffering. It's amazing how in our efforts to, I think, rightly explain our relationship with the Lord, we humanize him. We, we, we stop having an appropriate reverence and understanding for the gap that exists between the almighty creator of all things and us. We humanize him. David Bentley Hart, which is, I like him sometimes and sometimes I don't, but he's an Eastern Orthodox theologian. He said, any proposed alternative to the God of classical theism can never be more than an idol. A little G God, but not a capital G God. A theos, which is the Greek word for little G God, not, but not ha theos, not the God. A being, but not a being in its transcendent fullness. What he says is that classical theism puts God, in effect, up on his proper pedestal. And attractive though theistic mutualism may be, it's pulling God down in an effort to um, minimize the gap between he and us. A great example in your scriptures would be Paul in Acts 17. I just preached this a few Sundays ago at Sunnybrook. It says that Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus. That would have been like kind of the, the Harvard, the, the academic center of Athens. And he said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was descri- or inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. Notice that the, Paul's not trying to minimize the gap. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hand. Neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. An incredibly critical concept for divine simplicity. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. 
From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since we're God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. A couple of critical ideas here. First, that there is the God who made the world and everything in it. He puts everything in two categories, creator and created. There's, there's no other category. And Paul takes no pains to close the gap between those. There are two categories of existence, creator and created. And then he is Lord of heaven and earth, so he puts him in sovereignty over. It's not just there are two categories. It's one of these is absolutely sovereign over the other. And then he says he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything from anybody. We'll see this again in 1 Kings 8 here in a bit. Um, not only does he not need anything, does the, the creator doesn't need anything from the created. It's the creator that actually sustains the created. So not only does this not change this, this is desperately um, contingent upon the blessing of the creator. Um, then he talks about him appointing times and boundaries, which is, again, a sovereignty piece. And then I found this very interesting. In him we live and move and have our being. It never talks about the being of God. It only talks about our being as something that is contingent on the being of another. So here's, here's where, where we're going to run into trouble on divine simplicity. There are no passages that talk about it per se. And before we then say, well, then let's get rid of it. Why are we talking about it? The Trinity has the same problem. But this is where we take basic theological principles and we construct our theology. So theologians could be described as builders. We must take our raw materials, which are doctrinal truths, and assemble them according to overarching principles and practice to produce a structure, theology. So we're going to go through and we're going to find some doctrines that together add up to the concept of divine simplicity. And, uh, and I'll give you those categories here in a little bit. But first, more quotes. So Swiss theologian, Charles Journet, he says, The aim of the theologian dealing with a mystery is to do away with phrases which diminish the mystery. And I have, all, I have loved this quote for years because it is deeply deeply entrenched in my nature to try to explain everything to people. And I have, I have learned that I, not only can I not, but perhaps I shouldn't. Um, the inner workings of the Trinity, for example. The scriptures never tie that bow up for us. It just says, look, God's one and he's three. Deal with it. Um, it says that God in his fullness became a human being without laying outside his fullness. God, in his fullness, died a death on a cross without actually, like, God can't die, right? Yeah, but then he died, yeah. Okay. And I'm over here, I'd like to explain that, please. And the Bible just says, why don't you move on? Just, just move on. And I think divine simplicity is another area where the math clearly works out that this is an undeniable truth of Scripture. And yet, if you were to press me on its inner workings or the logic of it, or even the implications of it, I, I struggle to come up with much. 
I do think it has implications. I mean, we have that in the handout. But I don't have a whole lot more than what I... I think everything on those four pages is everything I have. And one of those pages is just three verses from Job. So this is kind of the, the end of what I can do with simplicity. I can do sovereignty all day long. Aseity would actually be another one where I, I'm going to quickly hit my wall where I ought not say much more. This is simply mysterious. And I think this is a very valuable tool in our tool belt as we start to assemble our theology is to where the Bible asks for mystery or where the Bible presents mystery. It, is got, it has to be my job as a theologian to stop trying to explain away the mystery. It's why I stop trying to explain what happens in the baptistry or whenever I consume the Lord's Supper. Those are mysterious sacramental moments where the Lord is doing something and I'm not really sure what. But it is a mystery. I mean, last weekend I got to do a wedding in a beautiful, city, a beautiful setting and, uh, and I was just reminded from Ephesians 5 um, that how a, a marriage pictures Christ's love for the church and it says, and this is a mystery. And it's like when we get to that word, it's like, pump the brakes, time to stop talking. This is a mystery. Um, mysteries are at times in Scripture something that are to be revealed later, but I don't think that's the case in when it comes to divine simplicity. The Belgic Confession, which is a Reformed confession from the 1500s, says this. This is one of the opening lines. So if simplicity is rather foreign to us, maybe we just didn't grow up Reformed enough. It says, we all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being which we call God. Baked into their confession about what it means to be a believer is to, is to uh, attest to God's simplicity. So we've got to deal with it. F.J. Uh, Sheed says this. He's another Catholic theologian. This, one of the things that I found fascinating as I was studying um, the, the doctrine of simplicity um, is how ecumenical it is, how across the board. It, it's not like Eastern Orthodox believe in it and Catholics laugh at it and Protestants don't know what to do with it. Protestants might actually be the worst with it, but um, it's, it's almost universally believed, which is encouraging. He says, a study of what is happening to theology in its higher reaches, he's looking at seminaries specifically, would almost certainly take as its starting point the attribute of simplicity. He's actually saying, if you are to start working through your theology of who God is, start with simplicity. Because every current heresy begins by being wrong on that. What he's saying is that most mainline popular level heresies start with um, maybe even kind of a real under the table version of theistic mutualism that God is in fact changing in accordance with us and he just says that's where you go wrong from the jump so okay we've talked about simplicity a lot let's define it the principal claim of divine simplicity is that God is not Composed of parts. Now, you'd be, you'd, you'd be well within your rights to say, wow, quite a build-up, Ryan, to something that seems rather dull and simple. He's not composed of parts. I didn't think he's composed of parts. Uh, mo most people won't say that he's composed of parts and then completely act as though he is. And we'll, we'll see that as we continue. But it's this simple. Ah, pun 
No pun intended, Kelsey. It is, it is this basic. He is not composed of parts. Because whatever is composed of parts depends on its parts to be what it is. You disassemble any one of these vehicles out here and it's no longer a vehicle. The parts have to go together in order for it to exist as what it is. Okay? And a part is anything that is subject, in a subject that is less than the whole and without which the subject would be radically different than what it is. Okay? If we were to remove Anthony's lungs, Anthony is no longer the same. No longer is he breathing. He can no longer sing his beautiful songs. if, If we start to disassemble him, he ceases to be the Anthony we know. His parts are required for him to be who he is. In short, composite beings need their parts in order to exist as they do. And because God cannot depend on what is not God in order to be God, theologians traditionally insist that everything that is in God is God himself. And this is about to get a little more complicated. Let Let me just say that last part again. Because God cannot depend on what is not God in order to be God, theologians traditionally insist that all that is in God is God. A wonderful book on this is called All That Is In God by James Dolezal. He wrote his dissertation on it. On the need to recover this particular doctrine in modern Protestant circles. James Dolezal, All That Is In God. Short little book, probably not too expensive. Okay, so that's what simplicity is. God is not composed of parts because he cannot be subject to any parts in order to be who he is. What are simplicity's implications? There are some. They're hard to, they're hard to track down, but there are some. Okay, first. God's existence the fact that he exists, and his essence, his ontology, his... Um, if, you're to, if you're to learn any, like, foreign word, those are two of the most important ones. This is the, the, the root um, of your being, the, the, the point where you cannot be reduced any further, and this is the study of that. So this is... What is the essence of who you are? And it's even further than you're a human being. It's like, because to be a human being doesn't bring in like the particularity of like Caleb's soul. Human being is still too generic. But ontos is whenever we strip everything else away, what is essentially Caleb? And, and when we're talking about the ontology of God, that's the study of his ontos, we are saying that his, his essence, the core of who he is. So God's existence and his essence, his ontos, cannot be constituent components of him, meaning they cannot depend on one another, each supplying what the other lacks. They cannot work like that. God must be identical with his existence and with his essence. It is his essence to exist. He doesn't just happen to exist. It is his essence to exist. I am that I am. I am the existing one. He does not simply happen to exist. He is existence. Similarly, God does not possess the quality of divinity. He is divinity himself. You and I cannot say that about our humanity. I possess the quality of humanity. 
But were I to cease existing, humanity continues on. Were God to cease existing, there is no longer a category of divinity. In fact, his divinity is baked into the idea that he cannot actually cease to exist. Fun philosophical little arguments, but this is an important implication of his its simplicity. His existence and his being are intrinsic to who he is, not just accidental. Okay? So we, we can definitely come back to that if we need to, but I need that to set up these next two implications. Two, if all that is in God is God, then each of his attributes is identical with his essence. God does not just have to be good. He does not happen to be merciful. He is not behaving justly. He does not accumulate wisdom. He is goodness itself. This is why this is where people get it really right when they say God is love and they get it really wrong when they stop there. Yes, God is love. There is no such thing as love that is detached from God because it is it is him. It's not even something he defines as much as something he is and therefore he defines. But he's also goodness. He is mercy. He is not merciful. He is mercy. He does not demonstrate justice. He is justice. He is wisdom. He is love. He is power. I can be loving or I can be hateful and um, I have not lost my humanity. I might have lost some dignity. I might have been... I might have lost some humanitarian side of me, but I've not lost the essence of who I am. Those, these things are, you cannot unravel them from God's existence. Does that make sense? I know it's, it sounds like we're splitting hairs here, but I need this to set up this last one. This one, this one's the funnest. Therefore, it further follows from God's non-compositeness. He is not a composite. That in him, all his attributes are really identical with each other. Therefore, because we are finite human beings that have to have categories for things, we talk about holiness and love and mercy and wrath and justice as if they're different things. In God, they are one thing. He, does, he cannot possess multiple attributes. He is one thing. This is why we cannot talk about his love and his wrath, divorced from one another, as if they're in content. You can't, I don't even think two sides of the same coin is the appropriate analogy anymore. It is the same coin. Love and wrath. Like, you cannot unravel these things. Don't take my word for it. How about John Owen? He's much smarter than I am. Um, Puritan theologian. He said, the attributes of God, which alone seem... To be distinct things in the essence of God are all of them essentially the same with one another. And everyone the same with the essence of God himself. Like there's a there's a I don't know, I, I, I think I've I've often fallen victim to loving a, an overly complex God. And the truth is that he's brilliantly simple. George Swinnick, another Puritan, says that God's attributes are one indivisible essence to will and to understand and to love and to hate and to be are all the same and one in God. And you might ask, well, does God actually hate? Yeah. In Psalm 5.5, it says he hates sinners. Love the sinner, hate the sin. 
I mean, you can do that. The Lord hates sinners, according to Psalm 5.5. And yet he loves the lost. And it is not his way. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. And we read those as if they're contradictions. What if they are the same freaking attribute? And the Bible is, it's almost like it's one gem. And the Bible is just walking around looking at multiple facets of it. But they're not, like, they're not different things. Here's what I will say. I will say I don't think this is um, abundantly clear. I don't think that it's brilliantly simple, oddly enough. Um, I don't think its implications are really that evident. But I do think that it is biblical. Um, And so let's look at the biblical basis for his divine simplicity. So as theologians, we're builders, and so we're going to build the house. And, and there are three primary doctrines that I want to use to assemble the doctrine of simplicity. First is that he is independent, okay? In Acts 17, it says that neither, we, we've already read this, but again, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. He's wholly independent from those he's created, needs nothing. Isaiah 40 says this, Who did he consult? I love the prophets. They're so sarcastic. Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And of course, the implied answer is no one. Who could? No one. One of my favorite passages about God's independence is in Daniel 4. It says, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand, or if you, if you like an older version, who can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's a little bit of a, I often describe um, the, my wife and I, our, our goal is to help our children understand how to be curious but respectful. Like you're allowed, like I tell my son, you're allowed to ask me questions but you are not permitted to question me. You hear the difference? You're allowed to say, why, Dad? But you're not allowed to put your finger in my chest and ask me why. There's a reverence here. He's not allowed to, he's, he's allowed to say, why are we doing this? I, I just want to understand. He's not allowed to look at me and say, what have you done? Because he assumes an air of authority that he does not in any way possess. I tell him all the time. You don't, you don't generate enough income to this house to have any of your opinions matter. I'm interested in them, but they are altogether irrelevant other than that because you, have, you contribute nothing. Um, you are just a consumer. He's not allowed to say, what have you done? Even more so, we are not allowed to look at God and question him, although he invites us into prayer to ask him questions, not to question him. In Exodus 3, we've talked about this before, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am the one who exists. The being one has sent me to you. So he's altogether independent of all other things. And he does not consult anyone before he moves. His, his sovereignty, his, his self-existing nature, they exist outside of all other creation. Two, as we continue to assemble the house, he is infinite. He's infinite. In Psalm 8, it says, Lord, our Lord, or Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens 
with your majesty. Perhaps a more uh, direct translation would be, you have covered all the skies with your majesty. It's this poetic way of describing the, the, the bigness, the infinitude of God. The dedication of the temple, Solomon says this, but will God indeed live on earth? I've built in this beautiful place. Will he indeed live here? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. Attesting to, of course, his infinity, uh, or his infinitude. In Psalm 145, it says, The Lord is great and highly to be praised, and not only is his great, but that greatness is unsearchable. It's beyond our grasp. It's that big. Another uh, question where the implied answer is no. Can you fathom the depths of God? Or can you discover the limits of the Almighty? No, of course not. And that sets it up for the great culmination of the scriptures when Jesus shows up in Revelation 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, the beginning and the end. There's... Anything that you can conceive of, it it fits in between where I am and where I am. The one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Getting into not only his infinitude, but his eternality, which Jim Johnson will come teach about next week. So he's independent and he's infinite. But the last one is that he is the creator. And look at how both the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul um, walk us through how his creation, like his act of creating, helps us understand how he cannot be divided into parts. He says in Revelation 4, John says, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Talk about everything else that exists by the will of the existing one. Back into simplicity. And then in Romans 4, Paul says, As it is written, quoting the Old Testament, I've made you the father of many nations. Abraham, he is our father in God's sight, in whom Abraham believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. So if I were to go back to our our doctrines here, how do we get to divine simplicity? There are other doctrines that add up to it, but I think God's independence, his, 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 his lack of need of anything whatsoever from anybody else, his infinite nature, the, the limitless um, aspect to him, and the fact that he wills everything else to existence points us to the fact that he is, in fact, simple. Now, that's the biblical case. Let's look at uh, the historical basis. I wanted to go crazy on this, but... I only gave you three. First, Irenaeus of Lyon. Uh, second century, one known as a church father. Um, he would be in the lineage of disciples from John the Apostle. He says, about God, of course, he is a simple, uncompounded being without diverse members. Now think about the complexity that that brings to the question of the Trinity. Uh, I don't think it's in contention with it, but it adds the question. Without diverse members and altogether like and equal to himself, since he, God, is holy understanding and holy spirit 
in holy thought. And he's not saying partial, like he is understanding, he's also spirit, and he's also thought. He's saying he is everything understanding, everything spirit, everything thought, everything intelligence, everything reason, and everything hearing, everything seeing, everything light, and everything source of all that is good, even as the religious and pious are wont to speak concerning God. So he puts simplicity. Second century, simplicity is already becoming an established concept about who God is. Again, pulled from the scriptures. Augustine of Hippo, which would be, so he would be writing this in the 5th century, toward the end of his life. He says, it is for, this is, by the way, on, if, if divine simplicity, it, it runs contrary to the idea of the Trinity. This is in the, his book on the Trinity. So Augustine actually connects simplicity, and we just don't have time to go into it. It's a big, complex argument. But he says he will defend the doctrine of the Trinity with the doctrine of simplicity. They're so intricately woven. He says, it is for this reason, then, that the nature of the Trinity is called simple, because it has not anything which it can, which it can lose. It shouldn't say is can lose. It can lose. And because it is not one thing and its contents another, as a cup and the liquor or a body and its color, or the air and the light or heat of it, or a mind and its wisdom. For none of these is what it has. So what he's saying is God doesn't possess the members of the Trinity within him. He's saying they are one thing. It's not like you can take a, 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 a goblet and pour the wine out, and you still have the goblet. He's saying there is no distinction between the three persons of the Trinity and the, the unity of the Godhead. They are, they are intricately connected and, and, and they cannot be divided whatsoever because they're simple. A more modern theologian, Hermann Bavink, says this. This would be a Dutch Reformed theologian. He says, the simplicity is of great importance for understanding our God, for our understanding of God. It is not only taught in Scripture, where God is called light and life and love, and what he's, what he's implying there, he doesn't go on to explain it, but what he's implying there is that he is completely light and completely life and completely love. He's, he's, he's getting into the unity of the attributes, the, the singularity of God as a attribute, or possessing, I, I guess you can't even talk about it as an attribute. But also automatically follows from the idea that uh, of God and is necessarily implied in the other attributes. Here's my one problem with this quote. What he's doing is he's changing categories. He's saying that light and life and love are effectively the same thing, and, and, but then he uses like a plural word, like attributes. Um, this is one of the things that uh, A.W. Tozer really questions, and I think rightly so, whether or not we should even use the word attributes. Because what we've done, and this is where we're accidental theistic mutualists, is we've, we've introduced some degree of division within the unity of who God is. I get it. We, like holiness and righteousness and goodness and love and wrath and mercy, all these things, we think of them in categories, and so we must necessarily speak of them in categories. Maybe we need to have a little bit more of a precise language when we describe the attributes of God might not be the best phrasing especially as it relates to his simplicity. But we're in the weeds at that point. So if we're talking about his simplicity at all, I'm happy. So some conclusions. Simplicity is important. So here, here are some, some reasons why we talk about this admittedly abstract idea. 
Without simplicity, it is not clear that any of the other claims classical theists tend to make about God can be true. Remember, God is self-existing. God is absolutely unchanging. God is absolutely eternal. If you do the math, if you, if you, uh, I, uh, tomorrow I turn 34, which means I'm officially a year away from my presidential run where the only thing I care about is mandating uh, logic classes, grades K through 12. No matter, I think it will fix our country. Probably, there's the gospel and then there's mandatory logic classes. I think that we are, we are pagans and we're terrible thinkers. Um, so I think those two things, I was, I'm, I'm trying to create a theocracy with logic classes. Um, but if you do the math, if you do the logic, and you want to set aside divine simplicity, you might not be able to see it right off the bat, but you will quickly set aside his self-existence, his unchanging nature, or his immutability, his all-powerful. Virtually every like well-attested-to and accepted attribute of God hangs, as we, as we saw earlier in, in, in one of those quotes, hangs on the fact that he is simple. And so to, 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 I'm not even saying to comprehend this solves it, but to reject it, it's just not going to be, it's, it's, I'm not a big fan of the phrase slippery slope, but that's effectively what it is. So a lot of other doctrines depend on this one, which is interesting because many of us haven't heard of it before tonight. Um, without simplicity, God must be dependent on something other than his own divinity for some aspects of his being. And thus, he cannot be self-existing and independent. So that just kind of proves the, the line before it. If he's not simple, he must depend on something. And therefore, if he depends on something other than what is him, then he is not, uh, uh, he, he is not asse, he is not self-existing, and he's certainly not independent. He's very much dependent on something. Third, without simplicity, God can in some way add to his being and is thus not immutable. You see how all these other critical doctrines start to fall apart. If he can add to himself, then he must be able to change. Without simplicity, it's not clear why God could not experience change without violating his eternality. His self-existing nature, his immutable nature, and his eternal nature all hang on the fact that this is true. Finally, without simplicity, it is impossible that God be in every way infinite as there must be parts in him. And parts, by definition, must be, that should say finite. That's a very bad mistake. That should say finite, not infinite. Parts, by definition, must be finite. Okay? I'm going to leave you with two last quotes. So, James Dole is all who I already, uh, I already told you about, wrote, um, so he's at Cairn University in, in Pennsylvania. He wrote a book called All That Is In God. Very, very, very good. And, it very, and as complex as some of, this, some of this may seem, it's actually a very clear book. He says, It seems audacious to conclude that this unique manner of God's care for his creatures. So talking about his, his simplicity, the fact that he cannot be divided. He's saying there are some who would look at that as if he is impersonal. So it seems audacious to conclude that this unique manner of God's care for his creatures is somehow impersonal and lacking vibrancy. Why must God be personal and related to others in the same way as finite persons are? There's another spelling mistake. You can tell I was doing this late. Um, 
Why does he have to be relational like us? Again, we have a tendency to humanize him. God is a relational God. Well, th- let me tell you how I'm relational. You know, I, re- I reply to every text within five minutes. That's how I'm relational. Okay. You've, you've introduced a category for God that is not a category for God. Just saying. Why must he undergo change in order for his love or opposition to sin to be regarded as genuine? Indeed, it would seem that the one who is unchanging, simple, and purely actual in all that he is, which is exactly what classical theism claims about God, is the one who is most profoundly vibrant and powerful in relating himself to others. A great little warning about making God do things how we do them. So, that's James Dolezal, and then I will just leave you with one we've already seen. The aim of the theologian dealing with a mystery is to do away with phrases which diminish the ministry. And that's about as far as we can go. Now, we can have lots of other scriptures that will support some of the same ideas that we've already talked about. So um, I left a lot of them out for the sake of time. But that's what I got. Monica has a couple of discussion questions, I believe.